Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. On this episode of Newt's World, there's a new invisible force at work in our economic and cultural lives. It affects every advertisement we see, every product we buy, from our morning coffee to a new pair of shoes. Stakeholder capitalism makes rosy promises of a better, more diverse, environmentally friendly world. But in reality, this ideology championed by America's business and political leaders robs us of our money, our voice, and our identity. The modern, woke industrial complex divides us as a people. By mixing morality with consumerism, America's elites prey on our innermost insecurities about who we really are. They sell us cheap social causes and skin-deep identities to satisfy our hunger for a cause and our search for meaning at a moment when we as Americans lack both. Now, a young entrepreneur makes the case that politics has no place in business and sets out a new vision for the future of American capitalism. Vivek Ramaswamy founded multi-billion dollar enterprises, led a biotech company as CEO, became a hedge fund partner in his 20s, trained as a scientist at Harvard and a lawyer at Yale, and grew up the child of immigrants in a small town in Ohio. His new book, Woke Inc., begins as a critique of stakeholder capitalism and ends with an exploration of what it means to be an American in 2021, a journey that begins with cynicism and ends with hope. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining me today. I'm curious, you have such a remarkable background. Can you tell us a little bit about your own upbringing and education? It's truly impressive. Well, thank you, Newt. It's an honor to be on with you. I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad came over in the 1970s, my mom in the 80s. And I asked my dad, why would you come to Cincinnati, Ohio from halfway around the world? And we often hear from him that his sister had moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which raised my same question about his sister. And the joke we tell is, why would you come to Indiana? It's the only U.S. state with the word India contained in the name of the state. So anyway, that's the joke we tell. And I had a good upbringing there. We were a middle-class family. They didn't come here with much money, but they did have an education. And I think the fact that that got them ahead in this country was imprinted into my own upbringing as well in terms of the value that education played in my own life and my own ability to live the American dream. Went to public schools through eighth grade, relatively poor public school, switched to a private high school for high school after, let's just say, getting roughed up in eighth grade. And my parents decided we needed to make a change. So I went to a Catholic high school, went to Harvard for college, thought I was going to be a scientist, was one of the nerdy guys in the lab the whole time. Instead, ended up in the world of biotech investing right before the 2008 financial crisis when I graduated. And I'll tell you, that shaped my views on capitalism in a lot of ways. I love capitalism, but I also learned to be wary of it when it gets intermingled with politics. And that's a lesson I saw firsthand working at a hedge fund in the pre-2008 and 2008 era. I picked up a law degree at Yale along the way. I told my bosses I had been so science-centric that I wanted to scratch an itch I had in law and political philosophy. So I told them I was leaving, and they said, actually, why don't you just keep your job and go to law school at the same time? Go manage a portfolio for us. So that was a win-win. It got me some more autonomy on the job. I went to Yale while keeping the job. Three of my best years, 2010 to 2013, met my wife there. Probably the most tangible thing that came out of it. And then when I came back, I think I was done being an investor. I started a biotech company. Happy to you know, tell you more about that story. Built that company for seven years as CEO, but I stepped down as CEO this year to focus not on biological cancer, as I had in my role as a biotech CEO, but on this new cultural cancer that I felt was going to threaten the very dream that allowed me to live the life that I had lived and my parents to come here a generation before. And that's what I ended up writing about in my book. Were you surprised? I mean, you're actually growing a company in the very parallel time that the woke system is growing and putting its tendrils into so much of American life. Did you have this sort of sense that you were following it in parallel, if you will? You know, my experience of it was different because one of the things about building a company is that you better have your head neck deep in the business when you're getting it off the ground. And so in a certain sense, for six years from 2014 when I got started till about 2020, I felt like I was in my own tunnel And then when I emerged from that tunnel, I felt like I was like Rip Van Winkle or something. And when I woke up to see what was going on in the business world around me, it was really different than the business world I knew in 2006 or 2007 when I was first getting out of college and transferring from being a biologist and a scientist to becoming a hedge fund investor. And the change that I noticed was that all of a sudden now, the very people who would have engaged in 
lavish capital excess back when I was working at Goldman Sachs or at hedge funds back in, you know, hedge fund internship, my first one in 2005, with some wild stories of capitalist excess, are now the same people who are donning new clothing, new slogans, new tributes to social responsibility. And to me, there was something really curious about that. There's something odd about it, and, and I thought something likely very hypocritical about it, too. And it turned out this had become the new form of capitalist excess, where capitalist leaders now didn't go to strip clubs or host lavish parties, as many stories have reported for Wall Street excesses in the pre-2008 era, but now instead did it by imposing socially just values on the rest of America. And to me, that was the modern form of capitalist excess, and yet nobody else could recognize what it was actually doing, which was aggregating moral power in the hands of a small group of American elites. And so that started to bug me quite a bit. I thought all I was going to do about it was write a Wall Street Journal op-ed in February of 2020, which is what I did. I had emerged from the cocoon for a little bit. The business was on its own two feet. I found myself with some spare mental space for the first time in six years. And so I wrote and sent in the op-ed. And that I would say set off a flurry in the business world that actually also caused an agent to approach me and said, you need to approach this and blow this out into a book. And that eventually led to the journey that led me to where I am now a year and a half later. How did you find the process of writing the book? Well, it was an unusual year to do it. So I found it incredibly enriching and the book's slated to come out on August 17th. I'm incredibly grateful that I did it because it helped me discover something about myself, which was what I actually thought about a complicated issue and reflecting on my own tenure as the CEO of a company that I had built and some of the conflicts that I faced in the tail end of that tenure. And there's something that I learned in high school, Newt, which is a high school English teacher once told me, you don't really know what you think unless you can write it down. And I think that that proved true over the course of the last year where I had a first draft of the book that was ready in November. I ended up tearing the whole thing up and rewriting the whole thing between then and February to really get to the bottom of what I believed. And I thought that process of introspection was something that was an exercise in self-discovery unlike any other that I had engaged in. It's my first book, and so I'm grateful for the exercise no matter how the book does. Well, and it seems to me that you took a very courageous position. I mean, just the subtitle, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, you're not going to make yourself radically more popular with the Harvard-Yale Alumni Association and their passionate desire to be politically correct. I haven't managed to do that. That's right. And, you know, it's been difficult, too, because a lot of the people who I consider close friends, even close extended family, former colleagues, some people who I currently consider colleagues, have looked up to me, actually. A lot of them have seen me as a source of inspiration in building a company and hiring their friends and family and their loved ones and themselves. And to see their disappointment in what they see as a betrayal of the position and the pedigree that got me to where I am, ranging from being a first-generation Indian immigrant with brown skin who maybe then committed to having certain views, all the way to having built a biotech company and having been educated in places like Harvard and Yale and done the right thing by developing medicines for people, to betray that to now, in their eyes, join the other side, has been just personally painful for me insofar as you feel like you're disappointing people who look up to you. But at the end of the day, my biggest issue with where we are in our country right now, Newt, is not even where we are with the content of the highly racialized woke movement, which I have tons of issues with. It's the deeper issue that we can't even engage in open dialogue with one another without fear of consequence and punishment. 
I think right now, majority of Americans probably are afraid to express their true beliefs in public because of the current political environment. Some people might be afraid of losing their jobs. Some people may be afraid of putting food on the dinner table. And I had gotten to a position in my own career where I don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table anymore. And I think with that came the responsibility to speak in an unabashed and unapologetic way about issues that I think we all ought to be talking about, at least in the open, before we decide how we're going to move forward after bridging the divide around those issues. One of the points you make, which is a very strong statement, is you call the woke culture the new secular religion in America. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, look, I think we live in a moment where patriotism is on the decline. Faith has nearly disappeared. I don't think we have a good answer to the question of what it means to be an American in the year 2021. And I think that our lack of an answer to that question is the black hole at the center of our nation's soul. And when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, bad things start to fill the void. That is what makes wokeism and postmodern traditions like wokeism the equivalent of our modern opioid for the masses, that we have an entire generation of people who are my age, millennials, younger, Gen Z, who are hungry for a sense of purpose, who are hungry for a cause, really they're hungry for identity. We are hungry for identity, I should say. I'm a member of this generation, and I think that's a good thing. But when we have lost the sources of meaning and purpose and identity from generations past, faith, patriotism, hard work, We're instead filling that moral hunger with the equivalent of fast food, the woke tradition, rather than more substantial fare, which is actually what we hunger for. So that's actually my view on the solution to the woke agenda isn't actually to cancel it in return, which I think some conservatives maybe want to do. And I could understand and be sympathetic to why. But I actually think the right answer is going to have to involve rebuilding a shared vision of moral and American identity that runs so deep that it dilutes this new religion to irrelevance. And it is a religion in every sense of the word, legally included for reasons that I talk about in the book, and that has immense legal consequence. But I think the most important point is we need to fill that religious faith-based void, that void of patriotism, that void of belief with something far more meaningful that dilutes wokeism to irrelevance. So from your perspective, I'm curious, a significant part of wokeism is about race and particularly about skin color. Do you think it infuriates the woke even more to have somebody who has brown skin from India saying things that are deviant from the depth of their new secular religion? Do you think in a sense you get a bigger level of anger than say I would get because they expect me to be hopeless. I absolutely think that because I experience it, right? I've been racially disparaged a lot in the last six months as I've become more vocal on my views. People call me a coconut, brown on the outside, white on the inside, I think is the implication. There's worse than that out there too. But I do think that that actually highlights another way in which wokeism is actually a religion because in many religions, (laughs) the greatest sin is not heresy. It is apostasy. And if you are an apostate, somebody who ought to know better but still defects from the religion, that's actually the greatest sin and deserving of the greatest punishment of all. And I feel like I'm (laughs) in some ways treated as an apostate twice over, once from somebody who was educated in the highest corridors of elite America and has lived the life of elite America. And there's no denying that I have. And in fact, that's part of what allowed me to succeed and get to where I am and to be able to see what I've been seeing and writing about. But the second is also having been a first-generation children of Indian immigrants, somebody who is 
not white, but speaking on behalf of, I would say, racial harmony in our country and moving towards a colorblind vision that I think, by the way, Martin Luther King shared when he spoke 60 years ago. Today, that's a form of not only heresy, but apostasy. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to, like that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. We did a survey recently and discovered that if we asked people, do you agree with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. when he said that he wanted people to be concerned about the content of his children's character, not the color of their skin? I was actually very surprised. The support for the content of your character was 91 to 6. Now, you'd never believe that if you went out and looked at the various woke publications or the woke cable news people or whatever, but the country still has a real desire to look beyond race and to look at you as a person and give you a shot as a person. And that was a surprise to us that the numbers were that big. Well, that's optimistic. And I'm an optimist too. I think that 
part of what we're seeing with the woke movement is a distorted representation of where the country is actually on the facts. And what's distorting it is this new culture of fear, where today there is no greater damnation in America than to be called a racist. And so when making the choice between being tarred with the scarlet R and pledging allegiance to this new religion, everyday Americans are choosing to bend the knee, even though they're not actually committing their hearts to the new religion, even as they do bend the knee to its temple. See, if you say that I'm not racist today, according to the dogmas of anti-racism, that means you are racist. If you capitalize the W in white, or you fail to capitalize the B in black, you are also, as of nine months ago, a racist. If you say that all lives matter, somehow that means you believe that black lives don't matter. And, you know, one of the things I hear from some of my friends on the left who are sheepishly going along, but I don't think are actually authentically committed in their hearts, is that, well, you're just sort of putting words in the mouth of the other side, and critical race theory is really just the conservatives stirring the pot with a manufactured controversy. And so one of the things I really like to do is stick to facts. So don't take it from me. Take it from Ibram Kendi, who's one of the high priests of the new religion, who says that the only remedy, this is his words, not mine, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Or Ayanna Presley, a member of the squad, who openly says that we don't need any more black faces that don't want to be black voices. We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be brown voices. As you said, I probably don't fit her description of what counts as a brown voice. How does it feel to know that you're actually not brown anymore? Yeah, (laughs) it's very revealing. You know, it's interesting to know that brown has gone from being something that you experience with your eyesight to something that instead you experience with your ears to know whether someone's voice was a brown voice or not. But that's exactly the jujitsu style move of the woke movement, where they have selectively, in certain contexts, transformed race from being about something as superficial as a skin deep characteristic to being about your voice. And here's the rub note is when race is then about your voice, that means that disagreeing with that voice automatically makes you a racist. And then the next step is if you're a racist, you're a pariah in modern American society. That's what creates this new culture of fear that supplants our old culture of free speech in our country. And that's exactly what motivated me to speak out. Senator Tim Scott does this whole riff about the fact that he ceased to be black. And Clarence Thomas had the same experience. He couldn't be the African-American on the Supreme Court, because he was a conservative, and he'd gone to a Catholic school. So he suddenly found himself being redefined by his opponents, which was probably a great surprise to his family. I think it was. You know, one of my law school classmates, who I quote in the book, I talk about in the book at some length, he's a guy by the name of Jamil Giovanni. He's half black, half Indian. He's, you know, developing a growing following in Canada as a political commentator there. But he was criticized for expressing views that betrayed his people. And I really detest this notion that our people ought to be defined on the basis of something as superficial as skin color. But I think he said at the time, nobody gets to tell me what kind of black man I get to be. And I thought he said it pretty well, which is why I talk about him a little bit more in the book, having been a former classmate of mine too. But I think it's a struggle that a lot of us face. To me, that's not even the most important part of it, right? If I'm going to be a prominent CEO, give up my seat, go out and write about controversial issues, guess what? People are going to come after you. That comes with the territory. I'm not really here to whine about it. But it is, I think, less about me and the fact that I take that personally and more about a sad indictment about where we are as a culture, where we have come full circle backwards even from where we were as of the civil rights movement to say that the color of your skin ought to dictate something about your perspectives. And I cannot think about something more racist in modern America 
in the classical first order sense of racism than to say that somebody's views are governed by the color of their skin, yet that's what the woke movement posits. I'm really struck with the degree to which we're seeing the rise of fascism in the original meaning of the term, which is an alliance between big business and big government. And you have all these corporations now that curry favor with the government, and then the government gives them advantages. And all of it's based on politics, which is inherently corrupting in terms of a free market system where it ought to be based on customer satisfaction and price and efficiency and capabilities. It's really, I think, a very sobering undermining of the entire system that made us remarkable. Well, I think you're right about that, Newt, but this is actually one of the places where in the book, I'm actually quite critical of the conservative movement and particularly the Republican Party over the last number of decades, where they are effectively duped into submission by reciting some slogan that they memorized in 1980, that the free market can do no wrong, without recognizing that the free market that they idealize does not exist today when big business works in concert with big government, where each one is more powerful than either one alone because each can do what the other cannot. And that new hybrid is far more powerful than what Ronald Reagan fought in 1980, which was just big government. This is the new woke industrial complex. It is a new leviathan that is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago. It is far more powerful than what our founding fathers envisioned a couple of centuries and a half ago. And I think that we're going to need new solutions for the new era. As my hero, Abraham Lincoln, famously said, the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. He said that in 1860. I think that the dogmas of 1980 are inadequate to meet the needs of the unique challenges of 2021. And as hypocritical as the left is, and I think the source of a lot of the fascism that you describe, I think the conservative movement has fallen short of meeting the moment by simply either turning the other way and pretending the problem doesn't exist and reciting some slogan from 1980, or I think some people in the newly nascent wing of the conservative movement that would rather burn the whole thing down. And I think the thing that we need to do is sterilize the castle of capitalism without burning the whole thing down. We've guarded it through the front door without realizing that it got invaded through the back door by the woke movement, the Communist Party of China, and a lot of other forces we didn't anticipate 40 years ago. But we're going to have to do something about that. And looking the other way and you know, memorizing Milton Friedman quotes from 40 years ago isn't really a solution. But neither is just saying we want to burn the whole thing down and offer solutions that are indistinguishable from what you might hear from Bernie Sanders. We have to do the hard work of restoring both capitalism and democracy. And I'm sorry to say we live in a moment where we have lost both when they have become commingled. So from your perspective, what would you do about Facebook and Twitter and Google and the really, really big internet oligarchs? So the first step is tracing the government source of their power in the first place. And I know a lot of people bandy about the term Section 230, but I think it's important to talk with precision what we ought to do, in my opinion, with Section 230, which is not to repeal it, but to amend it. Now, to be clear, I think this was a bad law when it was passed. In 1996, it was passed as the only federal law that I am aware of, which explicitly says that companies are immunized from liability for removing, and this is the statute itself says this, speech that is otherwise constitutionally protected. 
speaking as an American, as a constitutionalist, that offends every one of my deepest sensibilities because it is Congress explicitly deputizing a private party to do what Congress cannot directly do under the Constitution. The statute literally says they can do things that would immunize them from liability that are otherwise constitutionally protected in the form of speech that they would remove. Well, I think that what we need to do today, you know, I, I think it was a bad law when it was passed. I think it was an unconstitutional law when it was passed. But today, if we were just to repeal Section 230, even as President Trump, I think, you know, once suggested in passing, I think that would have the perverse effect of actually strengthening the very titans who were enabled to be created by Section 230 in the first place because they can withstand liability better than upstart competitors. So what I think we need instead is a reform of Section 230 that says, okay, you can't have it both ways. Either you get this special form of federal immunity and you abide by the same strictures as the federal government, bound by the Constitution of the United States, bound by the First Amendment, or you actually operate as a private company and we have an even playing field that doesn't exempt you just because you're a company that happens to have a website, but you can't have it both ways. And I think a lot of the new conservative solutions, Newt, center on that really simple principle with respect to government laws that are applied unevenly, and we got to say you can't have it both ways. And I can talk about more of them, but that's what I would say on the technology front. Now, you also mentioned in passing the growing role of the Chinese Communist Party, and I was very struck the other day. You know, the Russians back in the heyday of the Cold War used to create what were called honey traps which is either a boy or a girl, depending on your preference, who would, in effect, entice you, get you into a hotel room that had cameras, and then you would get blackmailed. In a sense, there's a money honey trap built by the Chinese Communist Party. And you see the president of Nike explaining that Nike's really a Chinese company and how proud they are to be part of the Chinese system. And no recognition of genocide in Western China, no recognition of the destruction of the Tibetan Buddhists, no recognition of the oppression of Hong Kong. What's your take on the whole relationship between corporate America and the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, so look, I think that the Chinese Communist Party has used stakeholder capitalism, this new dogma of how companies pursue social justice, to turn American democracy on its head, because it's really this simple, Newt. 30 years ago, we began with the flawed premise of democratic capitalism, which said that by spreading capitalism to China, by investing in China, we could use our money to get them to be more like us. And instead, they have done the reverse. They have used their money to get us to be more like them. We sent Big Macs and Happy Meals and loaded them up and think that would spread democracy. Instead, they have taken Disney movies and Nike sneakers, sent them back as Trojan horses that are undermining us from within. And here's how the Trojan horse plays its game, is that those companies relentlessly criticize injustice, microaggressions in the United States like systemic racism and transphobia, but they do not say a peep as they continue to expand in the Chinese market, including if you're Disney, filming Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China, where we have the greatest human rights atrocities committed by a major nation, in my opinion, since the Third Reich in 1930s Germany. And yet they don't say a peep about it. In fact, they compliment China. At the end of the movie Mulan, they thank them in the credits of the movie for allowing the privilege of filming there. They thank the very government agencies that are committing large-scale human rights atrocities from forced sterilization to possibly genocide. And that is how this two-faced behavior works, where now the people who have always been known for criticizing injustice 
aren't criticizing China. They're praising China, which creates a false moral equivalence on the global stage. And so if you listen really carefully, listen every time Xi Jinping is pressed by, let's say, the European Union last year when they asked him, what happens with the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province? The first thing he says is that Black Lives Matter shows the United States is no better. Their diplomat comes to Alaska earlier this year and says that China hopes the United States does better on human rights and stops slaughtering black Americans. This would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that these new international arbiters of justice, justices like Disney and Nike and the NBA, are engaging in a sort of a two-faced behavior that effectively allows them to make the most money because it's a condition of entry to the Chinese market, but effectively plays America on the global stage by undermining our greatest geopolitical asset of all. That is not our nuclear arsenal. That is our moral standing on the global stage. China is playing chess to undermine that over the long run. And I'm sorry to say they have co-opted capitalism like a virus. That is the real Chinese virus that I think we need to fight. It is one that equates this Chinese nihilism with American idealism on the global stage. And when that happens, nihilism wins every time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. But the six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like, choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline hey sarah i love that spring break vlog you posted on zigazoo omg you watched it yeah it was edited so well I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
I want to take you off to a totally different topic for a second because of your vast experience with pharmaceuticals and with the way that industry is regulated. I was very struck this week that a number of people are waiting to get their vaccinations for the Food and Drug Administration to officially approve them. And Dr. Fauci was on making the point that, look, you know, millions and millions of people have taken these vaccines. We know they're safe. And it suddenly hit me as a guy who's, you know, not a medical expert, but just as an observer. If you've had literally well over 100 million people in the U.S. and another several hundred million people around the world take these vaccines, what is there about the FDA bureaucracy that they couldn't just say it's obviously safe because you have a statistical database that's enormous? It's a funny point you make, and it's it's simple as it is. It's brilliant, and it shouldn't be brilliant because it should be obvious. But the FDA and the source of mistrust in public institutions in science, I think the link between their behavior and public mistrust is probably one of the great unexplored issues of our time. I think that our scientific class in this country has given the public no reason to trust them back. They mistrusted the public with the facts about COVID-19 and the pandemic since day one. They thought the public couldn't handle nuance in the facts. And in any relationship, Newt, where one party doesn't trust the other, the other party doesn't trust you back. And that's what's happening now with the public regarding the government. Is the government didn't trust the public? Now the public isn't trusting the government back. And this is a little bit off topic from what you raised, but I think that there is no example more offensive than the scientific institutional establishment's views towards the origin of this virus. I will tell you, last year, there were a lot of people who behind closed doors mused and worried about the possibility that this actually did originate in a lab, but felt they could not express that in public because it would undermine public trust in science. In fact, you then have social media companies that went on to censor somebody even being able to discuss the possibility that this virus came from a lab. And now here we are a good amount of time later where that is the predominant theory for how this virus originated. I personally think it is almost certainly a virus that originated in the lab based on what we know from the mutational characteristics of the virus. And to me, that's how you undermine public trust in science, not by coddling the public into trusting what you have to say, but to be transparent, to say things that may involve nuance, to be open about what we know and what we don't know. And I think the NIH plays a big role in perpetuating this. I think the FDA plays a big role in perpetuating this. I think Dr. Fauci has played a big role in perpetuating this. And I think the woke industrial complex has played a big role in perpetuating this with the role of social media companies working in concert to censor open discussion and skeptical dialogue, when in fact, that's what the true scientific method depends upon in the first place. Two things. One, I I have relatives who will not pay attention to any government numbers and just say flatly that they don't believe any of them. They don't know how to sort it out. So they just ignore them. So the government, which should be offering guidance in their world, doesn't exist. I mean, they just have zeroed it out and said, these people are either incompetent or corrupt, and we're not paying attention. I used to, in Congress, represent the Center for Disease Control, and the collapse of the CDC as a trusted institution is astonishing. I wouldn't have thought it possible. And yet here we are. I mean, I think we have a crisis of institutional mistrust in our country, and it's not the fault of the American people who don't trust the institutions. It's the fault of our institutions who have given them repeatedly no reason to trust them in return. And that's a part of what I'm calling out in the book is even the stuff with corporate wokeism, Newt, I began writing the book 
with the premise and the concern that this was going to racialize our culture, was going to divide and pit Americans against one another when Coca-Cola teaches its employees on how to be less white, or when United Airlines implements a racial quota system for the pilots who are in the cockpit, even if that means getting rid of tests for pilot competence. One of the things I worried about is that that would pit employees against one another based on their race. And what I discovered, having spent a year and a half Studying this with an open mind and not wanting to come to pre-specified conclusions is that I think that's happening a little bit, but not as much as I thought on a happy note, because a lot of people just tune out of these diversity sessions, right? If somebody's going through some of this anti-racism training in their corporation, what a majority of people are actually thinking is, okay, this is my time to tune out because they're just blabbering about what they have to say, but nobody really means it. The good side is that means that Coca-Cola may not play a role in actually culturally racializing, tribalizing us as much as we might have worried. That's the good news. The bad news is it is throwing fuel on the crisis of institutional mistrust because it, again, just teaches everyday Americans that you really just don't need to listen when either someone in the private sector or in the public sector who's running a major institution is speaking because they don't even mean what they are saying. They are just going through the motion of oral diarrhea, words coming out of their mouth that nobody ultimately can trust or listen to. And to me, that was the one of the unexpected discoveries over the course of writing this book is I began thinking the problem was really a racialization of our politics and our citizenry. And to be clear, especially in our schools, I do think that's a problem. But in the workplace, that's actually not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is just fueling this crisis of institutional mistrust because everyone knows not to believe a thing that someone else is saying because even the person who's saying it doesn't probably believe it either. I think you're exactly right. And I think what you're seeing, ironically, is it's very hard, even with the news media as biased as it is, and even with the education system as biased as it is, it's really hard in a relatively free society to propagandize people into believing things that they objectively in their own lives don't believe. That's right. The only way you get there is ultimately through open debate and dialogue and your own skepticism. And I'll tell you this, I talk about this a lot in the book in terms of my personal experiences of having been educated at places like you mentioned earlier, like Harvard, Yale, et cetera. I got a better education because my views were challenged in the open, because the people who I was surrounded by disagreed with me. That was a good thing where 10% of the time, you know what? I changed my mind. Your idea isn't your kid. If you get a better one comes along, you can just take it and make it your own. That's great. But 90% of the time, what did happen is I had the same conviction that I went in with, but I came out with an even firmer basis for believing what I did because I understood why after it was challenged. And I think instead, getting somebody to repeat a mantra and get certain words to come out of their mouth a certain number of times doesn't actually change what they think. You only get to the heart of someone's beliefs if they end up on the other side of having open dialogue and debate and still believe what they do. And I think that's what we've missed is institutional leaders think that they can ultimately get people to believe in science by shouting from the hilltops, trust the science, when in fact, the very thing that they're shouting from the hilltops betrays the scientific method itself that relies on open debate and skepticism. I'm curious about something. I hope you don't mind if I ask a sort of personal question, but listening to you, listening to your passion, obviously I agree very much with most of what you've said. But at the same time, I have to ask you, you were doing pretty well. I mean, you graduate of Harvard and Yale, head of a billion-dollar company, really good at making money. Was there something that your parents taught you, or where did this need to be a citizen and to sort of step aside from making your second, third, and fourth billion to actually 
try to communicate with and understand the country. I mean, it's a remarkable thing you've done, a great public service, but you had many choices with your life. And I'm curious, what do you think was the background that drove you into the middle of the public arena? Yeah, well, look, that would probably require a level of introspection that I may not have even gotten to quite yet. A lot's happened in the last year and a half. I became a father during that year, right at the time that I decided to embark on this new journey. So that probably had something to do with it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a year and a half now. That had to have something to do with it. But from a personal perspective, I can't tell you that I've looked deep into my soul, deep enough to know exactly how I connected those dots. But it feels to me like the thing I just need to be doing now in the sense that given my skill set, my training, my education, all that's been invested in me, I feel like there is not a more important problem I could be working on right now than addressing this cultural cancer. And my bar for saying that is pretty high, having come from spent the last decade and a half and the last seven years in particular focusing on biological disease. I would have told you when I embarked on that mission that there was nothing else more important that I could be doing. But I don't know that I'm going to succeed at this one or not. But I think working on this felt to me like the thing that I needed to be doing because as a citizen, there wasn't a time in my life where I felt like there was an opportunity for Americans like me to live out their civic duty as simply as by speaking up and expressing beliefs that others were too afraid to express to spawn a dialogue that we need to have as a country. And on a more superficial level, though, I could probably tell you that I took a stand-up comedy class after I graduated from law school, and I returned to my job full-time as an investor, and I tried my hand at being a comedian in New York City before I started my company. The first lesson that he taught me, and this is a kind of a famed guy who teaches this class, is that every time something annoys you, you got to write it down. And in the heart of what annoys you is a really good joke. You just have to find it. Well, it turns out I was a mediocre stand-up comedian at best. But that simple insight, A, led me to leave my job as an investor and start a company because one of the things that annoyed the hell out of me was the inefficiency of big pharma, which was in part built in the shadow of the FDA. It changed my life because the first thing it did is it caused me to leave my day job and start a company that ended up really defining my success in my career. But I guess I followed that same principle six years later into having built the company and coming up for air for the first time in 2020. Another thing that annoyed the hell out of me was the inauthenticity with which all of America's institutional elites and business leaders ultimately were pledging fealty to this new religion at the same time in a way that smacked of inauthenticity that I followed the guy's advice. I wrote it down, in that case, in the form of an op-ed, and that led me on this new career trajectory that unfolded ever since then. So at a superficial level, it's definitely the stand-up comedy class, but at a deeper level, I'm not sure I've connected the dots yet. <laughs> That's a great answer and not one I could ever have dreamed up. Listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. I think we need more voices like yours, speaking out for patriotic Americans who love this country and thinks what the left is doing to pressure us all into accepting woke culture is not the best idea in keeping our country unified. Your new book, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, is available for pre-order now. It'll be out this Tuesday. We're going to have a link to order your book on our show page at newtsworld.com. So thank you very much, Vivek. I thought this was really a great conversation. Thank you, Newt. It was a pleasure to be on and nice to meet you after having watched you for years. And thanks for the interest in the book, too. I appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. You can get a link to Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. 
Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.